Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we all have the testimony that we just read a moment ago in some way, to some degree. We are all sinners saved by your grace. Men and women who, without your grace and mercy, Father, would have had no hope. And now, because of your promises, we have nothing but hope. We know, Father, that we will escape this world and we will be with you some, someday. And that when you return, we will be with you here again in a new and better way. All of that future, Father, lies perhaps just a short time away. Whether because we will pass from this life and see you soon or whether you'll return. But either way, Father, it can't be long. And knowing that, knowing that your son's return is so soon, I pray, Father, we'd be all the more diligent now to prepare for that moment. Learning what we can from men like David and even from Saul. Learning the lessons that you've placed in your scripture for us to see and to understand and to reflect upon as examples in one side or the other. Let us consider these things, Father, not just for the sake of how they stimulate us intellectually, but how they might stimulate us to good deeds. For the sake of... Your glory. We ask these things Jesus in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. David's testing begins now. He's fleeing a madman who almost killed his own son last week. He's unsafe in his own country. He has nowhere to escape because Israel's surrounded by enemies. Where is he going to go? He's confined then to Israel where the king of the land is determined to kill him. Surely the Lord has placed David in a pressure cooker. Now he's left behind his best friend last week. We saw him do this, leave behind Jonathan. And he's headed into the countryside where no one he knows is likely to receive him. Last week he visited the priest for a little bread, if you remember, and then he had some men we heard following him, or so it appeared. Uh, And now we get to learn where he goes. And as we observe his flight tonight, I want you to take note of how the Lord is working to accomplish something great in this man throughout the course of these events. He is going to carefully balance the trials that David experiences with relief that God brings in the right timing. He's going to balance the threat that David will feel from Saul with rescue from unlikely places at times. He's going to balance David's fears with the encouragement of friends. The point is, God is not interested in taking David out of these circumstances, but by the same token, he doesn't want David to be crushed under them. And then after visiting the priest last week, David headed, as you remember, to the city of the Philistines, which was a complete disaster in the way he tried to make it work. And he came to his senses and realized he can't depend on Israel's enemies or even on his own tricks. He had to rest in the Lord. And that began the real progress for David. This is now the starting point. If you will, he went backward for a little while, turned around, now he's going forward. And now we have the rest of the book playing out the progress of his path. He's going to stay on the run the whole time. He's going to rely on the Lord to varying degrees. And it begins with him leaving Gath, the city of the Philistines, and going east back into Israel, back toward his enemy, if you will, into an area filled with large caves. And that's the start tonight. Chapter 22, verse 1. So, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And I want to pause to set up this chapter. David ends up in a cave called Adalam. Why do you think they give a cave a name? Well, it would tell you something about the cave, right? That it's significant? 
And in this case, it is. It's incredibly large. It exists in a region just south of the Elah Valley. That's where David defeated Goliath, if you remember a few chapters back. It's a region of limestone cliffs, soft stone, and when water passes through, it just carves out cavities in the stone. They have a lot of very large caverns there. Several of them are large enough they could easily accommodate 400 men or more. David flees there, and in his mindset, in his attitude, you know he's in fear, and he has to be in utter despair at this point because he's left his power behind, his family, his best friend. He's made him a fool of himself. Remember, he just left the low point of drooling on himself in front of the Philistine king, and he has no plan, no resources, and probably no idea how he's going to survive in the face of a determined enemy with all the power that a king possesses. And in the midst of that, in the mindset that he has, David wrote one of his first psalms, which we number Psalm 142. And think of what he's saying here in light of what we know of his situation. Verse 0 is just the preparatory verse explaining the psalm. It says, Mass kill of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me. You knew my path in the way where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. The psalm, as you saw at the beginning, is called a prayer. That's what he's doing in this cave. He's praying. His planning went nowhere. It amounted to nothing. He's schemed with the priests, lying to them about the bread. That didn't really help very much. He made his escape into the land of his enemies, and that didn't do him any good. And now, after all of that's been tried and shown to go nowhere, finally... When he has nothing else, he's in a cave by himself, now he prays. He's like so many of us who've been brought through trials. You know, when life comes crashing down at first, you think you have it under control. You try to manage it. You manage your circumstances. You plan. You scheme. You make a fool of yourself even at times. Not realizing the whole time that the Lord is the one who's actually bringing all those circumstances for good purpose. And therefore, all our scheming is just delaying the process of growth that the Lord has planned for our sake under those circumstances. And then eventually, when you go through all of that and nothing's working, you come to the end of yourself because you realize nothing has happened from your own efforts. You see the foolishness of it all, and you begin to recognize that, well, maybe the Lord has brought these things to me for some good purpose, maybe a test. And it's in that moment, if we're thinking straight, we turn to it. This is a confirmation of the old adage that prayer is our last resort when it should be our first response. It's fair to say that was David's pattern here as well. And I don't think it's too harsh to conclude that that's what he's going through. I think rather it's just confirmation that he's now at the beginning of his testing. We see this this immaturity in David, obviously, and that's the very thing that the Lord wanted to address. And he addresses things in us, our weaknesses, by exposing them first, if not to others, at least to ourselves. And then in the course of the exposure, we have a chance to understand what's wrong with with that part of our nature. And so David, in this case, prays at the end in verse 7. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. In other words, he prays for relief, 
But particularly, he prays for help. He prays for others who would surround him, righteous, that is, those who are on his side, who would come alongside. And in response, the Lord sends David that very support. As verse 1 told us, David is met by a collection of men from his tribe and from his immediate household. And you have to believe that would have been a tremendous encouragement to David, especially in the face of his prayer. He's sitting in this huge, empty cave, fearing for his life, feeling abandoned by the world. And then he looks up and a group of brothers appear, bringing him great relief. Until he notices who it is that's shown up. Verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. So if you were picking a kickball team, these are the guys that you always picked last. These are the guys with nothing to lose. Samuel says they are in distress, debt, and discontented. In other words, these are the guys who are as wanted in their own life as David is in his life. So when they hear that their future king of Israel is on the run, they say to themselves, well, this is my kind of king. He's literally in the same situation I'm in. This collection of rejected, despised, have-nots of society have found their refuge with a man who shares their shame, which is a beautiful picture of Christ. As Paul wrote, speaking of those who find refuge in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So the Lord appears to be giving David cause for encouragement by sending him these men, but he's doing it in such an odd way. It's a plan for encouraging a future king, and yet without giving opportunity for the pride of David to get in the way. That's what I think God is doing. I'm going to send you a bunch of guys, but not a bunch of guys you can be proud about. Remember, that's what caused Saul's problems, at least in his own heart, right? It was his self-importance for pride. That's what propelled his fall. But the Lord doesn't seem to want to give David any room for making the same mistake. His palace, it's a cave. His subjects, deadbeats, malcontents. There's not a lot of opportunity for pride under these circumstances, is there? Ironically, it's this odd group of men who later become the nucleus of support that eventually leads to crowning him as king. God's going to turn this mustard seed of support for David into a kingdom. And there's years of time yet to pass for that to take place. There's a battle that has to be fought and won. Their enemy is going to seem quite strong for a time, but his defeat has been assured from the beginning. I'm sure you can draw your own parallel between Christ and David. And now that David has his modest army, he decides he wants to leave the cave. He's going to be on the move again. I suspect maybe because he assumes if a group of men like this can find him, well, Saul probably won't have much trouble either. So he might as well be on the move again. He actually has a plan. There's more to it than that. Verse 3, And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. What David's doing here is very sensible uh, and understandable. He and his men go to Moab. Now Moab is the enemy of Israel, directly to the east. 
And since there's no safe haven in Israel for an enemy of the king of Israel, then it makes sense for David to escort his family out of the country. Because despite Saul's promises in the past, David's family is in trouble, as long as David is in trouble. And the country of Moab, being an enemy, is a safe place from Saul, but it's also the sensible place for David's family, because David's great-grandmother, Ruth, is a Moabite. And the Moabites might have had, we assume, some affinity for this family in light of that connection. So David goes to seek refuge with his family in Moab. But notice, David himself has no interest in staying there with his parents. And you can sense that because he says to the king, he needs the king to protect his parents until he finds out what the Lord is going to do with him. In other words, David seems to understand the Lord's working in his life, and he needs to be available, and he's not going to stay there. He is only there to drop off his parents. But, interestingly, though he says those words, once he gets there, it's not easy to just get back up again and go back into the fight. And you get a sense that David decided it was pretty comfortable because, it says he remained in Mitzpah with his parents in the stronghold. Stronghold is probably another word for Mitzpah. So he stayed there for a little while. Eventually, God says, you know, David, you can't stay here forever. And just in case you had forgotten that fact, he sends Gad, the prophet Gad, to encourage David to return. Now, Gad is a contemporary prophet with Samuel. But, as you know, we have no Bible book by this prophet. We know him only because of what Samuel writes of him. You'll see him pop up from time to time during the life of David in both First and Second Samuel. So David's encouraged by Gad to go back. Now, already you can see the Lord raising up a support structure for David, as I said. But it's the kind of structure that will leave no room for boasting. The man, on the other hand, who has no trouble boasting at all, Saul is still raving over the fact that David has escaped his clutches earlier. This now begins a pattern in Samuel's writing, where we will now see throughout the rest of this story, as long as both these men are alive, this back and forth treatment in the story. You're going to see David, and then you're going to see Saul, then back to David, then back to Saul. But in each case, Samuel is carefully juxtaposing the situation so that you can see where David is headed versus where Saul is headed, and one's up, one's down. And there's direct parallels between them as the story plays out. So we've seen David and his response to what the Lord is doing in his life. Now we turn back to Saul, verse 6. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gilbeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush, as it is to this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitu. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Can you already see the contrast between David's situation and Saul's situation. So Samuel moves back now to the story of Saul and drives home this contrast. David is humbly submitting to the Lord's will, enduring deprivation, taking shelter in Israel's enemies. And now you see Saul in exactly the opposite situation. And by the way, each man having the opposite reaction to their situation. He's sitting securely in his home under a tree, 
resting with his attendants, surrounding and listening to every word. But rather than being peace with the situation, he's frantic and making all these accusations and telling everyone how they... I love this one in verse 8. There's none of you who is sorry for me. All right, between the two guys, who should have to have people being sorry for them? But Saul's in the midst of self-pity. David is certainly distraught. But getting up and doing as the Lord demands that he does and not showing any self-pity at least other than just the natural distress you might feel if you were him. Saul has heard that David has followers in the desert now and so then he begins to mock David with that statement of hundreds and thousands and also to mock his own followers as if to suggest that they are all just another moment away from turning against Saul and following David as well. He blames his people for not revealing that Jonathan and David were in a covenant, but from what we can tell, that was struck in secret anyway. I'm not sure that anyone could have known about that until it finally came out later. Saul's paranoia doesn't really care about any of these facts, right? He's just in a self-pitying moment. At the end of verse 8, in his full-blown pity party, he is at the point where he's saying, I'm going to be ambushed, I'm going to be killed, and then Doeg speaks up. Now remember who this guy is, right? This is the guy who noticed David hanging around with the priest. He had been on assignment to Nob when David went to get the bread. And David had seen him. And he saw David. Now he tells Saul, this is the moment he decides to let Saul know, I saw David, I know where he was, I know what he was doing. And he tells the story though in such a way that it makes it sound worse than it was. Because... It wasn't as though the priests were sort of going out of their way to find David and help him, you know, as if to undermine Saul. They were just going about their normal business, and David showed up. And then remember, David lied to them. They didn't know what they were getting into. They just responded to what David told them. David said he was on assignment, and it was secret, and he had to help me. And they just did what he, were, what he was asking them to do. Doeg doesn't point it out that way. Doeg makes it sound as though the priests were on David's side. And by betraying David... What Doeg is doing is winning points with Saul, and that's his desire. And so, as expected, Saul reacts in anger to the news. Verse 11. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob. And all of them came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword? And inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush, as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard, and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it for me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. Then the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hand to attack the priests of the Lord. So the king, Saul, demands that the high priest appear before him with all of his household, all the priests of Nob. Saul confronts him, as you see. He accuses him. Again, always calling David the son of Jesse. Won't even say his name anymore. He mentions the bread and the sword and all that, but he basically concludes, this is all a conspiracy to come against me. And of course, nothing like this was true at all. He's just making all this up. Now, it seems from what the priest says here that he's just as confused as Saul is paranoid. He first acts incredulous at the idea that David would oppose Saul. He said, who's more loyal than David, first of all? Secondly, he says, it's not as though I would only have just started helping him now. I've always helped him. I mean, he's your captain of the army. Why wouldn't I have been helping him? 
Thirdly, he says, as far as all this other stuff, I don't know what you're talking about. Because we know he was acting under deception. Saul, though, is paranoid. He's not convinced. He's not going to listen to anybody's reason anyway. So he says to his soldiers, turn around and kill these guys. The soldiers don't do it. And the reason they don't do it is, I don't know that it's so much about being convinced or not. I think the point is, they had too much respect for the priesthood and for the Lord that they could not in good conscience do what Saul's ordering them to do. Clearly, they saw respect for the priesthood to be at least equal or greater than respect for this king who's you know, off the hinges now anyway. That's a very risky thing for these guys to do, but it shows you that Saul is losing his grip on the people. So what does a Jewish king need when he is determined to act contrary to Jewish law? That is to say, he wants to murder these priests. What does a Jewish king need if he's going to carry out that order? He needs someone who has no respect or concern for a Jewish law. That is to say, a Gentile. And of course, he happens to have a Gentile standing by, Doeg, the Edomite. Verse 18, Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword. Both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. So Doeg has no problem killing priests. Or for that matter, women, children, even infants, oxen, and the rest. And there is no indication that Saul expected him to go this far, but it doesn't appear either that Saul was upset at what he's done. Rather, it would seem Doeg went well beyond the call of duty, either out of hatred for Jews or simply to impress the king. The Septuagint, when it writes of the same moment, indicates that Doeg killed not 85, but 385. Josephus also writes that Doeg killed over 300 priests and prophets in Nob. So it would seem as though that higher number may be correct. And if so, it means he's wiping out the whole family of the high priest. Remember, these are the high priests and the family of the high priest descended from Eli. So this is the, the family from which high priests come, at least at this point in their history. And they've all been taken out, or most of them, as we'll find. Ironically, Saul was unwilling to wipe out the Gentile enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, as God directed, but he's all too willing to sin against the Lord by allowing a Gentile to wipe out the Jewish priesthood. But one member of the family survives to perpetuate the priesthood. Verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. Now, do you remember at the beginning of this book, we learned that Eli's priesthood was doomed to come to an end one day in the future because of the sin of Eli and his sons, or specifically for his sons. Well, that day is still yet to come. We said it would happen under Solomon's rule that this family line would eventually die out. For now, it continues by means of this one refugee, Abiathar. He escapes from Doeg and makes his way back to David. He must have figured that, well, now that he's a hunted man, he must be like the other guys that came to David. I'll join the, the one king who's a hunted man as well. He aligns with David. And with that decision, you now see the sensibility, the wisdom of what the Lord was doing in allowing Doeg to do what Doeg did. This is an example, friends, of the Lord turning all things to good for those who love him. Because of Saul's sin and the sin of this Edomite, now the only priest remaining in the line of high priests belongs to David, not to Saul. 
David has become the protector of the priesthood, and so it will be with him forever until he dies. And of course, the Lord is using David and Saul to extinguish the line of Eli, just as he promised, but he's not ready to do it just yet. He's just working his way there. But in the meantime, David has the priests. Nevertheless, David's obviously distraught at the thought that he's responsible for all of this, and he's blaming himself. And I know you and I might be tempted at this point to say, oh, come on, David, you're overreacting. I mean, you didn't do this. Doeg did this. But actually, he's not far from the truth. Because he made the decision to go to the priest, which was not God's intention. And when he saw Doeg, he admits even now, he knew that this was going to happen. But he didn't do anything about it. At the very least, he should have stopped Doeg. So I'm not blaming David directly, but I am saying there is a measure of responsibility that came out of what David did. And so David is feeling that. But nevertheless, we don't blame him directly, as I said. Saul is the man in full rebellion, not David. More than that, Saul is psychologically and emotionally unhinged. And you see that in the fact that he's willing to even ask for the priest to be killed. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. But when he makes that statement in Romans, he's speaking broadly about the condition of our soul. Such that when a person lives in persistent sin, eventually the wages, or we could say the return on that lifestyle, takes its toll. And death is the result. Certainly for those who do not know the Lord, that death is in the sense of the eternal death. But even for the believer, there is still a wage, a return on sin. A person can suffer a a slow death socially or a slow death psychologically or physically or spiritually to a degree. And if you have saving faith, then God's grace will preserve you from the ultimate penalty, that is the second death. But nonetheless, you can still suffer the side effects of sin in this life by earning the wages that it brings. That's the story of Saul. He's a man earning the wages of his sin, and that's now playing out in this deteriorating psyche which allows him to even reach a point of thinking that he could murder innocents in order to obtain what he desires. That is not in itself incompatible with someone who knows the Lord. It should be rare, certainly, but it's not impossible. Depends on how long someone has been earning wages in their life of sin and how far they're willing to take it. As David reflected on these circumstances, that is, as he reflected on hearing the news of the priesthood having been wiped out as a result of his actions, he wrote another psalm, Psalm 52. I'll read that one. Verse 0 says, For the choir director, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Now the story returns to David. Remember I told you we go back and forth. So we've seen David. Now we've seen Saul for a little while. Now we're back to David at the beginning of chapter 23. Once again, the contrast now. You have the increasing rebellion of Saul. We've just seen that. So let's look at now the increasing obedience of David. Verse 1. Then 
they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. So to begin chapter 23 and connect it to chapter 22, we have to assume David returned from Moab to the large cave of Adullam. And from there he learns that the Philistines have attacked a little Jewish town called Keilah. This town's only about two and a half miles south of this cave. So it's an easy opportunity for David to get engaged and help this town if he chooses to. And that's why he's heard about it. It's just down the road. The Philistines are raiding, it says here, the grain storage of the Jews living in that area. So all the grain of the surrounding area in the Shephelah Hills would have been brought into this town, it sounds like, and stored there. The Philistines knew that. They want the grain. They've come for it. And so they're attacking the city. But the city's got a good defense. It's got a good wall, a good gate. It's not an easy job to defeat the city, so there's a real battle going on around that. And David asks the Lord, should I go down there and help my Jewish brothers? This is interesting. Notice David starts with that inquiry of the Lord. He starts with a prayer asking for direction. This is actually the first of four times we're going to see him do that in the course of these events. You would think perhaps that would be, I mean, when we're reading it in the Bible and we're Bible students and we're all, we all have our holy hats on and we look at this, we go, of course he pray. We all pray before we do anything, right? Ham sandwich or tuna fish? Lord, which one should I have? No, that's not how we do things. We know we don't do things like that, even if we should. And even on matters of this importance, you would probably have looked at the facts and said, two miles away, we're all right here, this is easy, let's go, right? It, it would seem sensible maybe, but David's not thinking like that. He inquires of the Lord. When it says he inquires of the Lord, it means something very specific. He sought the Lord's counsel through the use of the ephod that was worn by the high priest, Abiathar, who is now with David. The ephod contained two special stones called Urim and Thummim. These that roughly mean light and perfection or light and truth. These two stones were used by the high priest of Israel to divine the will of God. The priest could ask a yes-no question of God. It had to be in the form of a yes or no question. And he would throw the stones, and it was, it was binary. They, they would show up you know, either one way or the other, and you got your answer from God. God would affect the stones, and they would divine the answer that way. And God had provided these to Israel in the law so that he could speak clearly when they had matters of importance they needed to bring before him. Obviously, it's supernatural. It's a provision God had made available. And they had always been in the possession of the high priest, which means up until recently, Saul had access to this same way to know God's will. He could have inquired of God at any time, but it appears he made no effort to do so because he had no interest in what God's will was, right? And in that sense, the loss of the priesthood made very little difference. It's why Saul was willing to kill them all. But the arrival of this priest now for David means David gets to operate under the, uh, the guidance and the direction of God, and he's availing himself of it. So he asked the Lord, do I go to the city? The Lord's answer is, yes, go down there. So David tells the man of his plan, hey, the Lord said we need to go fight this battle, and of course they fear for their lives already, and they tell David, you know, it's bad enough here. Why do I want to go down there where there's more guys who want to hurt me? And at that point, David could have now gone the opposite direction, right? He could have argued the point. He could have said, I already heard from the Lord. Take my word on this. We can't sit here. 
Let's go. You all might agree with me. That's perfectly sensible. Why wouldn't we do that? David doesn't do that. He goes back a second time and he asks the Lord to confirm the earlier order. And as you look at the pattern here, what David does, this approach to this situation and to these men under his care is a great example of godly, humble leadership. Because, of course, we all know the first step for anyone who's seeking the Lord's will is to go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord's direction. That part, that's easy. It requires that we ask Him specifically to direct our hearts, which He will do by His Spirit. I mean, you might be tempted to think, well, I don't have a couple of rocks that always tell me what God's will is. No, you don't, but you have something better. You know, you don't have to talk in yes-nos. And you're, you're not dependent on another guy with a, with a couple of rocks to come to your aid anytime you have a question. You have the Spirit with you at all times who's more than capable of making God's will known to you in complete detail. It's really more a question of whether we're listening than whether he's speaking. And so you've already got more than what they had, at least in that sense. So David models the importance of seeking God's guidance when we seek in our own lives to obey, but even more importantly, when we're leading others in that context. We seek the Lord, we communicate the orders of what we learned from the Lord to others, we share what God reveals, and here's why we do that, not just because people need to know what to do, but because as you manifest the will of God to others, you go on the record concerning what he said to you personally. And accountability to the will of God goes up exponentially when you share to others what the Lord has said to you. Because now someone else is helping you watch for whether you're obedient to that word or not. Keep it a secret, and you're far more likely to forget it or file it away for the time you actually want to go do it. But as you share the will of God with others, and you tell them, here's what I've heard, now let's go do it, you're going to encounter resistance. Often, typically, not unusually. Perhaps it's a spouse, perhaps it's a friend or a parent or someone else who will come along and question the plan. And at that point, you might be tempted to begin arguing in God's favor out of an assurance that you know what you're doing. That response may seem like a demonstration of faith, but I would argue it can just as easily be the result of pride. Perhaps, in some cases, that counsel that you're hearing that is counter to what you thought, maybe that counsel is actually the Lord's will coming through them to correct your misunderstanding from the beginning. You have to leave room for that possibility in these moments. So we need to have the humility to seek the Lord again for confirmation, even after we thought we knew it, in the face of anybody's correction or counter-guidance. That is not an indication of a lack of faith. It's simply a reasonable precaution to avoid falling into the pride of mistaking your own voice for God's. Then, once you have some confirmation, as David received here, then you move out and you call upon those who look to you, in some sense, to follow you. You call on their support. Because, friends, if you're sure the Lord's spoken, and certainly if you get confirmation, you're going to be very sure at that point. Once you have a very strong confidence you're in the Lord's will, then you must also have confidence He's going to bring the rest of the plan together in the lives of the people around you. Spiritual leadership is often a matter of persevering in spite of opposition from God's people to say nothing of the enemy. And David's men needed his inspiration to overcome their fears and to step out in faith. And so David provided that inspiration without resulting to pride or bravado. He said, this is what the Lord said. They said, we don't like that idea. He says, let me check back in. He came back. He said, no, that's exactly what the Lord said. Now, come on, guys, we're going to go do what the Lord said. Humility is an admirable and inspiring quality in any leader. And it takes some humility to take that feedback and consider it as you go back to the Lord. Lastly, David doesn't let his men pout in self-pity. They said, we are safer here doing nothing than we are stepping out and serving in this dangerous situation. But he tells them, no, it's time we get busy serving other people. 
Nothing inspires us to serve and obey God better than focusing on the needs of others before our own. In fact, I find it typically the case, and ironically so, that when you live a self-centered lifestyle, you're unlikely to obtain the spiritual blessing you're trying to get. When you start serving others and make that the goal, the Lord sort of comes alongside and takes care of all the other needs. As Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, He said, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So surely enough, as, as David and his men obey the Lord, the Lord brings a victory. We read that. And consider what that means. It means 400 poorly armed, untrained men are able to defeat a Philistine army of some unknown number. They take away the livestock of the army. They free the city from the attackers. So not only did he win the victory, he's endured himself to the people, at least these people. And in the process, the Lord gave him a provision because now he's got livestock. Didn't have that before. What a great example of seeking first the righteousness of God and then having all those other needs met in the process. Now David has made a big splash. He's defended the city. Word's going to get out. Saul's going to figure out where he is and what he's up to, of course, because he's still frantically searching for David. So this will be the last section tonight. We're going to go one time more back to Saul. Look at the contrast now. Verse 6. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kehilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness, in the strongholds, and remained in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Samuel reminds us that when David went into battle, this priest, Abiathar, accompanied him. That's the point of verse 6. The point of verse 6 is to simply say, David left the cave to fight, the priest went with him with the ephod. That explains then how David had access to that ephod later. By the way, that would indicate that David felt that it was important to keep this priest near him because he knew he would be needing the consultation of the Lord at all times. It also shows that the priest has said, I'm a part of this permanently now. David defeats the enemy, frees the city, but then goes into the city. Reason being, he must have been thinking this could be a safe haven for him, a place where he could defend himself from Saul. This is a tough city to break into in its day. It would have been a very difficult thing, as Saul himself mentioned. This is double-gated, double-barred doors. It's a city that was not easy to get in or out of. Of course, Saul is depending on that for his own purposes. But David must have been thinking, I can hold up here with my men, and maybe this is my safe hold against Saul. No more running around in the wilderness. I'll just stay here. He's pretty confident that he can survive there. The only trick is the inhabitants of the city will have to take his side in this battle. Because David's going to need their help to defend the city. Now Saul, from his side, he recognizes an opportunity because he says this city could be David's prison. He trusts that if he sieges the city, 
what's going to happen is the inhabitants aren't going to want to have a fight against their own king, and so they're going to hand over David to get rid of the trouble. And so he's depending on the city holding David till he can get there, and then he'll take David when he threatens the city. So David asked the Lord, by means of the ephod, What's going to come of this attack? Is he coming? If he comes, am I going to be given up? And you saw the answers, right? That Saul's not only coming, but the people are going to give him up. They are going to betray him. In other words, what the Lord is telling David is, yes, you have to flee. Yes, you have to remain a refugee. Yes, you have to continue the flight. No, I'm not giving you a place to stay in comfort. This is an important footnote on our earlier analysis of David's godly leadership. It would be natural to assume too much about this victory. That is to say, if you were David, you could have assumed too much. That since God sent him there, that God said it was time to go fight, that God delivered the victory for David, I mean, he's seen all of that, it would have been very easy for him to assume that God had nothing but good intentions for him now that he was there and in the city. Right? He could have made the assumption, without ever going to the ephod again, that I can just stay here and I'm good because the Lord's on my side. Look what he just did with me. That would be something many of us would say about things in our life when we've seen great victories, right? I mean, after all, why would God give you such a great victory only to let you be destroyed in the end anyway? Which would have happened according to what the Lord says. That's exactly what would happen if David had made that assumption. Which illustrates you cannot ever assume that you have the full picture of God's will. You have to continually return to know what the next step is in his plan. Just because he delivers you out of one set of circumstances doesn't mean that he intends to grant you victory in everything that you face. Sometimes the defeats you encounter in life are the result of walking away from his counsel rather than the Lord turning his back on us. And maybe it's just a test that you need to endure. And that's what the Lord is doing here, obviously. He's preparing to defend and protect David. We saw that at the end of the passage I read. He won't let Saul get the upper hand, right? But it's got to be according to his plan. And therefore, David has to keep moving. If that's the plan, the plan is you stay on the run, then that's the way you stay safe. Ironically, the way he stays safe is to move about rather than to stay inside a walled city because safety is in God's will, not in the strongholds of men. Never presume too much about the Lord's willingness to rescue you, whether from life or death or just from some temptation into sin. Stay in his will. Don't get ahead of him. And then lastly, in verses 13 and 14, we get the summary, right? Saul gives up the pursuit because he learned David's not there, which is, again, confirmation David had moved according to the Lord's will. By leaving the city, the threat went away. Nevertheless, he's still living under harsh and uncomfortable circumstances. He's in a harsh wilderness in the hill country. He's living on the run. You know, living on the run is never easy. Remember David's plight when someone tells you that those who lack comfort or material riches are suffering because they lack faith or because somehow they are displeasing to God. David's story is proof of such teaching being false. David's living in deprivation precisely because he was in God's will. This was God's will for his life, that he would experience hardship, at least for a time. But by that experience, he would grow closer to the Lord, which is an infinitely more valuable asset than anything the world would offer in riches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the example of a man like David who sought you, who was tested, but who was protected. Lord, help us to remember these small details in the everyday matters of our life when we feel tested and discouraged and when the enemy seems to have the upper hand in our life, whether that's the enemy of our flesh or the enemy of the world or the enemy proper. We know, Father, that all of these events in our life are brought together according to your will for good purposes. I just pray, Father, you would help us stay in your will. Give us... uh, Give us the clear direction we need by your Spirit to never walk ahead of you or away from you. And 
as we do walk with you, Father, and as we're given instruction to take on hardships that we don't quite understand, I just pray, Father, you would help ease our fears and concerns and remind us that you are in charge and you do care and that the events of our life are not a perfect measure of what is good. For that waits at the judgment, Father. We do, we do trust in you and we ask for it, Father, you give us patience to look forward to that day. Thank you, Lord, for the example of a man like David who prays and seeks your will in all circumstances. We ask that you would continue to give us a heart to do that as we uh, continue in this study. And bring us back next week. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.